Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. Now speak so we can listen. In Jesus' name. Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first two verses. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. Now in our previous message in this series on sexual sanity, we, l- we looked at the amazing transformation that occurred in our lives by the grace of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. God took a hard stony heart and transformed it into a soft heart of flesh which was capable of receiving information and deep impressions about the law of God, the love of God and the fear of God. He then took our dead spirits and made us alive in Christ and caused the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us. Then he took minds that were darkened, futile and ignorant and he transformed it into a mind that can be renewed in knowledge and righteousness and in the image of our Creator. And he took bodies that were our masters and he broke the tyranny of the body so that we no longer have to obey the demands of that body. And we saw also that the first step in developing a practical response uh, to this whole matter of bringing our human sexuality into line with God's pattern was a call to faith. Faith that this battle can indeed be won because of this wonderful transformation that God has accomplished within us. But the scriptures also say so clearly that faith without works is dead. God has done what only He can do in bringing about such a transformation so that we can now do what He has enabled us to do. And yes, you remember I told you, there's nothing more to do in making a hard heart a soft one. That's his work and it's finished. There's nothing more to do in making dead people alive. He's done that. But there still is work to do in taking a renewable mind and making it new. And taking a body which is no longer our master and teaching it that it is no longer our master. And it's exactly those two things that Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 address. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let's take a look first of all at what he says about the body. He says, and again all the overheads are available for you outside. You can just pick them up. For some of you who may not be able to see as clearly as you normally do, the screen is a little bit closer, the print is a bit smaller. I've tried to make it as big as I can. So bear with me today with some of these necessary constraints. He says, offer your bodies to God. And he says three things. Offer them as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual worship. Paul is using language of Old Testament liturgy. Before the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world, when an Israelite sinned, he or she had to bring an animal, have it slain upon the altar. It was a literal sacrifice and it was a dead sacrifice. It was holy in the sense that this animal had to be without any blemish at all. And it was pleasing because God said, anytime you follow my prescribed rules for coming into my presence, that is a pleasing and an acceptable offering. 
But of course everything was physical. The offering took place in a physical temple. A physical priest took it into the holy place. There was literal blood that was shed. Then the Lord Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus died on the cross, His was both a living as well as a dead sacrifice. All throughout His life, He obeyed the Father and then He literally died on the cross. He was holy in His own person. And His whole life and His death was a sweet fragrance acceptable to God. But ever since that time, because of Christ's perfect sacrifice upon the cross, we today living on this side of the cross have been totally free from physically constrained and determined forms of worship. Everything has been transformed to a spiritual realm. And so he says, first of all, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now you don't come and offer dead animals on the altar anymore. You offer your bodies, but you offer them as a living sacrifice to God. Our bodies are the primary means by which we carry out the desires of our mind and our heart. And so they become a powerful expression, if you will, for obedience to God where our bodily uh, elements or instruments are involved. The word holy now means not our purity necessarily, although that will come, but it is primarily the idea of being set apart for a very special purpose by God. And he says, offer your bodies to God once for all, that tense in the original language for offer is a once and for all decisive irrevocable act. And Paul puts it all this by saying, in view of God's mercy in transforming you, do this. Taking it all together, what he is saying is, in the light of this magnificent work that God has done in our hearts, minds, bodies and spirits, that calls us to faith, that refuses to throw in the towel, that refuses to settle for an uneasy truce in this area, that is determined to continue. He says your first expression of that faith is to make a decisive, once and for all, explicit commitment of the members of your body as a holy offering to Him. Put the members of your body at His disposal for Him to do what He wants with them to accomplish His purposes. And may I suggest to you that at this point, when you are doing this in your prayer time and the prayer guides outline this for you, be specific and explicit. God is not ashamed with our bodies. He made them. Each one of us has a different Achilles heel, a different weak spot when it comes to the sexual area of your life. For some of us, it's our eyes, what we look at. For others, it's what we listen to. Others, it happens to be our tongue. And for others of us, it may be our more explicit sexual organs. When we yield our bodies to God in this area, let's name our Achilles heel. Let's give it to God. And let's dare to believe that He will take it and that He will do whatever He needs to do with those parts of our body in order to use us for His service. As I said, this will vary from person to person. But there is one particular part of us which all of us need to yield to God. Funnily enough, it happens to be the most important sexual organ in our bodies. You know what that is? It's our minds. Our minds are our single most important sexual organ. And so after saying yield your bodies to God, Paul moves in verse 2 to the mind which is where we are going to focus. And really when you think of it, our bodies in the final analysis, are, what they do is determined by how we think. How we think determines how we feel. 
and the thinking and the feeling together determine our actions. And so Paul moves there to the, where the real emphasis is. And he says two things about this matter of the mind being dedicated to God. There's a negative aspect to our task and there's a positive aspect to our task. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The negative side is don't be conformed and the positive side is be transformed. And for the rest of this morning, I want to focus on the first part. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And next week, we'll pick up the other side, which is to be transformed. What does it mean then to not be conformed to the world's pattern? Some of you may have actually seen, uh, either either in a commercial or in a uh, documentary or perhaps in a visit to some of the factories, how sheet metal is formed into or molded into certain shapes. For example, an automobile chassis. It's usually stamped out in one operation. A large massive steel plate is placed on top of a suitably designed mold. And a huge steel machine driven piston with the appropriate die comes in and forces the metal into that mold. Sometimes it is done when the metal is hot, other times it is done when the metal is cold, depending on the purpose. And it squeezes the metal into the mold and when the piston moves back out and it ejects the whole piece and now you have the sheet metal in the form of the mold. That's exactly the kind of thing that's going on here when Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. That word pattern means that mold. He says, the world has a mold and has a piston that drives it. It is the way the world thinks and therefore the way the world acts. There is that mold. And all around us, he says, there is something that is pushing every Christian and attempting to squeeze them into that mold so that we slowly begin to think the way the world thinks and act the way the world acts, even though our minds have actually been transformed into... That's why I like J.B. Phillips' translation. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now the question of course for us is, how do we stop it? And you might even remind me of something I said two weeks ago and you said, Pastor Krishnan, you promised us you're not going to give us just say no answers. You told us you were going to give us something more than just say no and now you're just saying just say no to the pressures of the world. You're right, I'm going to give you more than just say no. Now we're going to come from the proverbial left field for a while, so bear with me for a minute. I want you to imagine a situation. You may not be a runner, but let's imagine for the purpose of this exercise that you like to run. And say one morning you decide when the weather is a little bit warmer than it is today, you put your shorts on, you put on your running shoes and you step out of the house just to begin your run. You feel a little bit thirsty, but it's not too bad, not enough to cause you to go back in and take your shoes off and pour out something from the fridge. So you start running and you run and it's a little bit warmer than you thought. And once you marked out your run, you can't easily turn around and come back. And so your thirst slowly starts increasing. Boy, I really didn't think I was that thirsty. And then the lips begin to get parched. And the tongue and the mouth begins to get dry. And then the throat begins to get dry. And you begin to just imagine and think about water, juice, whatever it is. But you finish your run. And by now your thirst is absolutely intense. You come back into the house and there someone has very thoughtfully put right on the kitchen counter a tall frosted glass of your favorite juice. Well, you don't really stop to do anything else, do you? You grab that glass of juice and you drink it. And it feels so good for the lips, for the throat, 
for the mouth. You might even go to the fridge, get the jug out and fill up a second glass of your favorite beverage and you drink that too. Perhaps a third, depending on how thirsty you are. And then you go upstairs to get ready and have a shower. And there someone has very thoughtlessly, right on the bathroom counter there, left another tall glass full of the same juice. Well, this time you don't want to reach out and drink it. You probably mutter something to yourself about why people can't be more sensitive and put stuff back where it belongs. Maybe even pour the stuff down the sink, wash the glass out and have a shower. You know, you may not know it, but in that simple process you've gone through four stages that characterize almost every physical urge that we experience. Here are the four stages. Stage number one is restlessness. That's mild, and I'm using restlessness in a different sense than the normal word. That's the stage of very mild thirst. That's what you felt on the way out. But the running was far more important. You really couldn't be bothered. By the time you finished your run, you had moved from restlessness to agitation. By now the thirst was intense and the feelings that go along with it was intense as well. Then you come back in, grab the glass of juice and you drink and now there is alleviation of that agitation. That's when you drink very deeply. And then finally there's relaxation which is the loss of desire to drink. That's when you found the glass up in the bathroom. Restlessness, agitation, alleviation, relaxation. This is how we experience urges. Now let me ask you a question. At what point did the desire to drink become almost irresistible? Right here, isn't it? When that frosted glass of water came into view at the time the the thirst had been incredibly agitated, at that point it was almost impossible not to reach out for the glass and drink. Now our sexual urges function very similar to this. In a very normal, appropriate sense, we all experience certain sexual desires. A mild thirst, if you will. A normal state of restlessness. But that state can sometimes be agitated and the world is a past master at agitating this normal restlessness when it comes to sexual desires. Now, in that agitated state, what happens when a frosted glass comes into view? Maybe it's a hotel room and your hand is on the knob one twist away is a pornographic move. Maybe you suddenly find yourself looking at the adult section in a video store. Maybe it's a casual but willing acquaintance in a hotel bar somewhere. But when that frosted glass comes into view in an agitated state, then the temptation is much, much stronger. As John White put it, the supply in the state of agitation becomes almost irresistible. Now if you happen to partake of it, whether it's to watch the movie or take out a video that is not healthy for you, then you get alleviation and a loss of desire, which is why so often so many of us, as we even begin to indulge some of our fantasies, the pleasure turns to ashes in our mouth so quickly. Because the alleviation happens and it's like the extra glass of orange juice. You don't feel like drinking. Let somebody offer you a second video after the first one. And it's very easy to say no at that point. Because you've lost the desire. You see, most of us, and this is where it gets practical. Most of us try to win the battle at this stage. 
When the frosted glass comes into view in the agitated state, we try to say no and we fail over and over and over again. Just say no is almost impossible at this point. I remember right after the time when Jimmy Baker and Jessica Hahn's story broke, right after that when my friend Mike Wilkins and I got together, well, we talked about it and we asked each other how we are doing in that area of our life. And as we talked, Mike, my friend, made a very interesting observation. He said, Sundar, how well would we have fared alone with Jessica Hahn in a hotel room? Just say no would be quite powerless at that point because the supply in the presence of the need is almost irresistible. It's not much point me standing there with her alone in the hotel room saying Philippians 4.13 says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't. You see, whether or not we win the battle is determined not by what we do at this stage but what we do at this stage. The practical application of this charge to not be conformed or not allow the world to conform you is to attempt this, to stop this move from restlessness to agitation, not from agitation to alleviation. That one is much harder. It's because we don't recognize this process that we have so much trouble with this. So the real question for us to ask is where are the sources that are agitating us in our culture? So there's our first charge for us, that's to avoid agitation. Where is it coming from? Dr. Robert Lichter, who is the director of Center for Media and Public Affairs in Washington, D.C., wrote a book some time ago called The Media Elite. In that he surveyed the values of the top journalists of our nation. Now this was an American study, but I don't know whether it's very different here. Fifty percent of them said they had no religion at all. 86% of them seldom attended any services. 75% of them okayed homosexual behavior. 54% of them said adultery was not wrong. Only 15% of them strongly agreed that adultery was wrong compared to a national average that is closer to 80%. These are the top journalists and the media people in our nation. It's not surprising that these kind of values find their way into their products. Now this doesn't mean that many of the movies many of the television programs that they produce are all bad. There may be many of them in which there is nothing that is explicitly wrong or obviously immoral. But a lot of them, without our even knowing it, move us from restlessness to agitation. That's the real problem. One brief illustration. 94% of all sexual contacts on daytime soap operas are extramarital in nature. Now one wouldn't necessarily call soaps, at least not the time I checked them out ten years ago, pornographic. I don't know what they're like today. But they agitate us. The same is true with culture. A few weeks ago when I was at the RZIM Founders Dinner, we had a, a panel discussion on the Saturday morning where a chaplain from Harvard University was involved. And he was talking about the climate on the campuses of North America today. He said they're not even modernist, they become postmodernist. And he defined postmodernism as that state where one does not even believe that meaning is possible in anything. That it's not possible to talk meaningfully about anything. And he said the real purveyors, the ones who shape the consciousness, he said, are not necessarily the professors in the business and the scientific runs, but those that are in the humanities, literature, sociology, psychology. And they filter down to us 
in the bestseller books that we read, in the plays that we watch in the theaters of today. Many of these modern day bestsellers, you know those 8 and 900 page glitzy covered behemoths that we see, they are not pornographic. They are not obviously sinful. But guess what? Their themes are such that they all move us from restlessness to agitation. And we don't know about it. Because there is nothing sinful obviously about it. I remember a friend of mine. used to be a Youth for Christ director in India many years ago. Very influential in the early stages of my Christian life and my brother-in-law's life. He was a musician. He came to North America with his family. And after several years his marriage began to get into some difficulties. Do you know what kind of books he would spend most of his time reading? They were biographies and autobiographies of well-known Christian musicians who had been divorced and remarried and were now having successful ministries. Were they pornographic? No. Were they bad? No. Were they harmful? Yes. Because they kept moving him from restlessness to agitation. And then one day when the supply came into view, there was a frosted glass that moved into his life. Bingo. End of marriage. Divorce end of ministry same thing is true with the music that we listen to and it hardly matters at this point the style or the genre of the music that's beside the point but the lyrics and the lifestyle of the singers are critical and those two are inseparable by the way because lifestyle eventually gets is the power behind the lyrics anyway again many of much of the stuff that we listen to may not be wrong may not be obviously immoral but it's moving us from restlessness to agitation So in all of these things, from the media and from the culture, the real issue is not that these things are sinful, but that these things are moving us, as I said, from restlessness to an agitation state. And so if we are going to win this battle to uh, solve this problem, or respond to this suggestion to not conform to the world's pattern, our task is to put our efforts where we are really going to succeed, and to remove the attempt to try and win the battle when the glass comes into view in the agitated state rather to begin to look at what we watch what we read that in themselves are not wrong but which move us from restlessness to agitation there it is much easier to say just say no if we do that if we largely maintain our sexual drives in this state known as mild thirst and restlessness and refuse to let them get agitated, then guess what? Then if the frosted glass does suddenly come into view as well, it's much easier to say no because this gap, this jump is a very difficult jump to make unless you go through this agitation. So this is where we need to work to win the battle. I am absolutely convinced that the battle is won here by what we do at this point, not what we try and do here. By the way, the same principle is critically important when it comes to this issue of what is appropriate physical contact during dating and during engagement. It's a question that I'm often asked in counseling situations and things like that. Exactly the same kind of mindset becomes very helpful. If the primary goal in a dating relationship, if the primary goal in an engagement phase even, is the exploration of our minds and our spirits, what is appropriate contact physically? Is holding hands all right? Is embracing all right? Is kissing all right? Is petting all right? After all, isn't the only goal to avoid sexual intercourse? So long as we avoid that, isn't everything okay? Listen to what John White says in his book, uh, Eros Defile. You know, it seems only yesterday when the gravest topic in Christian magazines in, uh, directed at youth and adolescents had to do with adolescent petting. How far to go? Should one hold hands on a date, kiss, embrace, touch, fondle? 
Once you try to map out morality in terms of anatomy and physiology, you wind up with an ethical labyrinth from which there is no exit. If we pursue the argument far enough, we will see that an approach to the morality of premarital sex, which is based on details of behavior and details of the parts of the body, can only satisfy a Pharisee. A look can be as sensual as a touch, and a finger brushed lightly over a cheek as erotic as sexual intercourse. Kissing, touching, caressing, all prepare the body for the participants for physical intercourse. They are part of a whole. If that is so, how do we decide what is right for us? Let me put it for you in the form of a diagram that I developed when I was actually counseling somebody. God just really kind of gave this all to me in a diagram. When I diagrammed it this way, it helped him a lot. So let me share it with you. This black line out here, if you will, is, represents increasing degree of physical contact. What we usually try to avoid is this thing called sin or sexual intercourse. Way out here is what I call the edge of the slippery slope. That's when the supply comes into view in an extremely agitated condition. Now this young man was wise and he had drawn his line in his relationship with his friend way back out here in this stage where there was normal restlessness but very little agitation. One day things got a little bit out of control and they began to move further along the spectrum. And he reached this point, much further than where he had drawn the line, but a little bit before the edge of the slippery slope. And he said three things came into play to stop us from going any further. He said, my recent commitment to God and my commitment of accountability to two people, one of whom was me. Now, what was my advice to him? And I think this is the key point. My advice to him was, listen, just because you were able to stop here successfully, and still short of the slippery slope, don't make this your new standard. Thank God for His grace in stopping you and move right back to this point where you were because this is further along the agitation spectrum. What I didn't do was to try and define for Him what this state was. I didn't say holding hands is okay but embracing isn't. Holding hands and embracing is okay but kissing isn't. You know why? White goes on to say this. He says, no one can decide these things for you. The only criterion to guide you, listen carefully, will be what kisses, squeezes and holding hands do for either of you. Do they turn you on? Do they make it harder to communicate at levels you ought to be communicating? Do they lower your resistance to old patterns of interaction? An affectionate caress becomes sex play the moment it begins to pull your thoughts from what you should be sharing to what you should not be sharing. And if I put it in the form of a principle and in the form of this diagram, Simply ask yourself, what things are moving me from restlessness to agitation? Those things are not right for you. And if you think I'm hopelessly out of touch in giving you this kind of advice, I had the pleasure, after having conceived this whole idea of talking to a young couple who are en route to considering marriage, who came from torrid sexual backgrounds before they became Christians, and in the process of such counselings, I always ask them how they are doing as far as maintaining their purity is concerned. You know what they said to me, and they didn't even know what I was going to be talking about. They said, Pastor, we have decided that for us, we can go so far as holding hands and occasionally embracing. That's as far as we can go before restlessness becomes agitation. The line for you may be different, but the principle is the same. Whenever restlessness becomes agitation, that's the point at which you need to stop. 
and pull back. So that's one part of not conforming to the patterns of this world. Very quickly, there's one other very important criterion and with that we're finished. Avoid agitation and secondly, avoid risky environments. Gordon MacDonald in his book, uh, Rebuilding Your Broken World, uh, has a very powerful illustration from an event that we all are aware of. Many of you probably saw film clips of the 1986 tragedy of the space shuttle Challenger which blew up in mid-air 76 seconds after the launch. Some of you may have even seen it live, horrified at what was happening. You might also know that the cause of the failure was a particular component known as O-rings that were seals that somehow prevented hot rocket gases from coming into contact with the outer skin and reaching the liquid, nitrogen, liquid propellant gas tanks which would then cause the whole thing to explode. In 55 previous launches, these O-rings had performed flawlessly. But this time they exploded. Why? Later on they discovered that the previous night before the launch at Cape Canaveral, the temperature had gone so low, and by the way it does get cold in Florida, we found that out last week. It got cold enough that the temperature dropped below the limits for which the designers had specified for the O-rings. And so the next day it exploded. What's the principle there? The principle simply is this. That sexual temptation that is easy to handle in certain environments can blow up in our face in a different environment where the O-rings were never intended to function. And so we've got two tasks to do. Not only do we have to identify those things in our life that move us from restlessness to agitation and stop them, we also need to ask ourselves, what are the environments in which my O-rings will weaken? And they will vary from person to person. So I can't prescribe specific ones. But let me give you three broad categories of environments in which O-rings are likely to fail. And with that we are finished. Number one are environments of what I call missed restraints. Where the normal restraints are no longer there. It happens to me every time I travel away from home. Listen, standing in view of the pornographic book magazine rack at Becker's is no problem for me. Standing close to a similar book rack at Frankfurt Airport, surrounded by 300 people that I'll never see again. It's a little bit difficult, different situation. An attractive colleague at work to whom, you're at, to whom, whom you find attractive may be no problem at home. But when you're away from home on a business trip at a pool party or a cocktail party, surrounded by a bunch of other colleagues who don't mind flirting, that's a different situation altogether. The, TV, the garbage on the TV at home nauseates me. When I'm alone in a hotel room with a 4x6 card advertising its wares, it's a little bit of a different situation. They're all environments where the normal restraints are missed. There's another one that I want to mention, and for this I might get some flack, but I have to mention it, otherwise I would not be faithful to what I believe. I find in North America a practice that was amazing to me, and that is couples who are not married go away on vacations together, alone. Is it sinful? No. Is it an environment in which the O-ring might fail? Yes. Because the O-rings were never intended. The issue is not whether we do anything sinful. The issue is not how spiritual we may be. That's not an environment in which we were intended to survive. I discover other habits sometimes. People who are not married, not sleeping together, but sleeping under the same roof with nobody else there. Is it very sinful about one person sleeping on the floor, another one on the bed? No. Is it an environment in which the O-rings can fail? Yes. Those are all examples of missed restraints. 
Here's another one. Another environment in which the O-rings can fail are situations where there is non-physical intimacy, but lots of it, at the emotional, intellectual and spiritual. And you remember what we've already learned, that sexual intimacy is the natural expression of an intimacy we share at three other levels, emotional, intellectual and spiritual. And all of these things were intended to magnify or multiply the sexual pleasures within marriage, but sometimes these intimacies occur outside marriage. That's why you so often hear about pastors ending up having affairs with a female member of their congregation they were counseling. That's why you hear of therapists ending up involved in affairs or or clients involved in um, emotional attachments to therapists. That's why bosses sometimes run away with secretaries and and it's not always the prototypical gorgeous blonde. Sometimes the woman that they get involved with can't hold a candle in physical beauty to the wives whom they have betrayed. But it's because of the intimacy that develops at common goals and work levels. Now, even if nothing physically sinful happens in these situations, the spiritual and emotional and the intellectual bonding can be just as destructive. And you see, you never know, you never know which is your 56th time. Just because you survived 55 times. So you need to watch for those areas. And then lastly, overloaded and destabilized situations. Some of you may know how earthquakes happen. Earthquakes happen when large land masses are slowly moving in opposite direction, inch by inch, year by year, and they are building up something called strain energy, just like when we take a rubber band and keep pulling, it gets tighter and tighter. There's more and more energy in that rubber band. In this condition, the land masses are very unstable, just like the rubber band is. Any slight movement, and it can snap off your fingers. So sometimes there is a slight movement, and these two land masses slip and release a certain amount of energy. And the more they slip, the more the energy they release, and the greater the devastation. Sometimes we can become like that. There are situations in our life that make us overloaded and destabilized. Long, unusually hard-working periods of work, where we happen to work six, seven days a week for long periods of time, can fatigue us. Grief at the loss of a loved one suddenly overloads us with emotion. And then the midlife, all of the relational changes, parents growing older, parents dying, people of your own age getting sick and some of them dying, children leaving home, precipitating new situations within marriage, job situations changing, being locked in vocationally, physiological changes within our body when we no longer can do what we did before. All of these things conspire to produce destabilizing effects. And that's why otherwise impeccable people often end up failing in some of these situations. Now, look at this. Look at how these two work together. (laughs) When you take a risky environment, add to it an agitated condition, and the frosted glass comes into view, we are sitting ducks. So we need to do both of those things. We need to identify the issues that are agitating us, not in themselves sinful, that's the critical point, but which are nonetheless agitating us and get rid of them. And we need to identify environments in which our O-rings are likely to fail and begin to get rid of them or change those environments. This is what is involved in not conforming to the world's pattern. Next week, we'll pick up and put the final piece of the puzzle into place, and that is the positive side to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In the meantime, please take your uh, prayer guides. They're available for you. And by the way, I was so delighted. Jean tells me that every Sunday she prepares about 500 prayer guides, and she only has about 50 left. Thank you so much for taking that charge seriously. So continue to pray and saturate this process with your prayers. Take your hymn books and turn to hymn number 225. Number 225.
Let this be our response today. We'll stand and we'll sing stanzas one, five, and six. Stand together, please. Take my life and you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God which is your spiritual worship do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will God bless you as you go and make this your reasonable spiritual worship.